Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 105.0 AM Palm Springs. You are back in the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Mr. Eric, the Dr. Shapiro, is back in the house. How you doing, Al? I'm doing good. It's been a while. You've been out Yeah, I know. I went, went by very quickly. I was traveling. I was on uh, New York and New Jersey seeing my parents. I was, uh, I was in Hawaii for a wedding. So, yeah, I've just been very busy. Yeah, yeah. And what's this you're into? You're doing Kung Fu now? Oh, I'm doing Kung Fu. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I love, surprisingly. I'm not athletic at all. Uh, we figured we would try it, though, my family, my wife and kids. And uh, we're now going into our third month. Yeah, we really, really love it. Yeah, it seems like it's it's kind of it's good exercise. And at the same time, you're learning something. And I think it's amazing. I think you and just like the um, Michael Hawley is another co-host are the, probably the two best family men I know because you guys, Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, Cause you guys do so much with your family. Like it's you and the kids you're doing this and just like him, they, you guys do a lot with your kids and family. And I think that's great because so many people I I don't see do that. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you for saying that. You know, it's interesting because with social media, 
uh, I realized that I wasn't, because I spend the most time with my family, I realized I wasn't playing that up. You know, my older son's 11 now. And um, in the past couple of years, I've been a little more open about it. For whatever reason, it was more like, it always looked like I was by myself, but I'm constantly with them. So I, I think I've been, um, I mean, not only is what you're saying true, but I've been sharing it more. Yeah, and I think that's great. I think it's a good thing. I mean, one of the... It's, oh, it's, thank you so much. It actually, um, your your posts like that, as well as Holly's posts, always make me smile because you guys are always doing things with your family, doing some sort of thing like the Kung Fu or he goes out hiking or he does something, and it's kind of fun to watch your family do that and oh, actually be happy. Nice. Like Everybody's happy and they're having a good time, and they're, it's more about spending time together. And I think that's really, really cool because that's something that... I never really realized because it certainly wasn't in my life. So it's, oh. it's, it's kind of, it's special to see people, not only that, people I know and like that are doing this with their family. I, in a way, I'm proud of it, you know, even though it's Oh, fine. thank you. No, that really, uh, warms my heart. <laughs> Al, that might be the most, uh, uh, uncomplicatedly sentimental thing you've ever said on the show. Well, there you go. I think, I yeah. think it's, I think it's important. No, it's important. And I think I like yeah. to say things like that because I love to bring people up when I can because, there's not enough of it out there, you know. Oh, no, um, thank you for saying that. I got to tell you, that's what it's all about. I feel like because I'm in my mid-40s now, I feel like I'm heading into that phase of life where ambition is becoming less important and relationships are becoming more important. And, uh, I mean, you said it, whether it's uh, a kung fu class or hiking, those days when we spend those times together or we go on trips, that is the uh, the best part of life. Yeah, it's all that stays with you. It's all you have. Really? It really does. Yeah. yeah. And then what's interesting is I learned as a dad that uh, your children's uh, strongest memories going forward will be from travel. And I never knew that. And I, I thought of my own childhood. I was like, oh, that's actually true. Because I remember trips we took. And then I, I'm hearing them start to talk about the different places we've taken them. I'm like, wow, it actually, it's actually true. It gives them a really great experience. So that's, that's a part of it also. Yeah, and one last thing. It's not. I don't want you to get too big of a head, but I've uh, even on your birthday. I'm I'm so impressed that for you, your birthday, you'll spend it on the beach with your kids. Oh, that's nice. And and I think that's amazing because for me, I could never imagine my dad wanting to spend his birthday with me. No, I don't mean wow. that as a negative yeah. thing, but I'm just like, I. In fact, it never happened in my life, and. And I'm not the only one. I, it was the generational thing, you know, just okay. with, with the parents Wait, and stuff, you know. So what would they do? They would, It would be the parents' birthday, so they'd just go out and have a dinner or something like that? Yeah, yeah. And back then, like, you see, they never took us kids with them to dinner, right? Oh, oh it's like that, yeah. Right, okay. right. We never went to a restaurant with them. That was just not heard of. Um, so anyway, but that was a totally different thing. But I just, I like I said, I think it's so impressive. Um, that people do this for their kids. And so I think that gives us hope, right? Oh, oh, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. And I'm a big believer in the exact thing you're talking about. I actually think uh, the quality time together supersedes the verbal relationship. Like I talk to my kids a lot, but I think anything I can impart to them in the way of a lesson or a verbal, you know, recounting or sharing a story, I don't think it's nearly as powerful as just being around them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, now we are getting on to our interview for today. Um, now, this is kind of related to what we've been talking about in a sense, too. It's uh, um, So we're going to bring on uh, the author. Um, the book is called Bad Guy Lawyer. And, of course, the author's name is Chuck Martin. So thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Great to be here. Before we get into the book, 
too much. Let's talk about where you come from and who you are. And I guess this is your first book, if I'm correct. What got you into writing? I'm one of those people who grew up wanting to be a writer and then early on kind of chickened out. I was worried that I would not be successful enough that it would work out for me. Uh, and so what ended up happening is I decided to pivot towards a career path that seemed a little bit clearer to me in terms of, well, if you do this, then and then you move on to this. And if you do this, then you move on to this. And that was a path in medicine. For me, instead of the ambiguity of how does one actually become a novelist and sell books was replaced with something much more linear while well, you go to college, then medical school, then residency, et cetera. And I never really worried about getting a job and having a source of income as a doctor. But like a lot of things, when you make that type of decision, as far as your vocation goes, you always are second guessing that and, and thinking back, oh, if only. And so after a certain point in my medical career, I think it was an inevitability that I said, you know what, there are aspects of my career I enjoy, but there are aspects of my career where I feel a little bit of a void. And I'm going to fill that void by writing. Over time, I was able to come up with enough things to write that I could put it into a novel. Well, I go to bad guy lawyer. Like why I noticed that uh, this is kind of um, a crime fiction interest in a sense, you know, and stuff like what, what attracts you to that? So the, the book is called Bad Guy Lawyer. And the central protagonist is a former mob lawyer who's sort of on the run from his former employer. and But what he does is he teams up with a back alley doctor, someone who is a surgeon for the mob, who stitches up mob henchmen when they're shot up and they can't go to the, you know, they can't go to the hospital. And the two of them team up to sort of uh, solve the mystery of the lawyer uh, character, Guy McCann, his missing girlfriend, with the hopes that once they find her, they'll be able to get some information from her that allows both of them to get the mob off their backs. And that is this basically the central, you know, aspects of the story. The idea came to me when I was in medical school because I had friends who were in law school and I would think kind of just wistfully in my mind, Oh, what would it be like to take a back alley doctor and team them up with, with the mob lawyer? These are two classic tropes that you see show up in crime movies and crime novels all the time, but kind of make them central to the story and team them up. And I thought that that would be a very cool, you know, background idea for, for, a, for a story. And over time, I just kept thinking about, okay, what would, who would these two people be? How would they get to the situation that they're in? How would they meet up? And, you know, how, and we take it from there. And one of the things that was so fun for me as I was coming up with this idea for the story and, and putting it all together was, Doctors and lawyers are used to being the smartest guys in the room. And so theoretically, they should be smarter than the criminals that employ them. And I thought it'd be fun to really put that to the test, take these guys and put them into, you know, doctors and lawyers and put them into an, an underground sort of element where now they're in the criminal world. Do those skill sets really come in handy and how can they use them to their advantage when they're trying to stay alive and being chased by people trying to kill them? Wow, that's a really good juxtaposition between like street smartness and uh, sort of the educated intellect. That's really fascinating. It also, the way you just described that, your journey into the story, it's almost like you symbolically 
were going underground, right? Like becoming an artist was almost like a criminal act. So it's like, okay, you're now testing your own intellect as a doctor within the arts. It's like a symbolic mirror for the, uh, you know, the bad guys in your story uh, being with the mob. Does that all register? Absolutely, because what you end up doing is you work during the day and then you are writing at night or when you can kind of fit it in. And actually, a lot of times I would be at work and this is maybe, you know, an admission that maybe I shouldn't make, but there would be times I would be in meetings. There would be times that I would be on rounds where I would just get story ideas and I would just start writing stuff in the margins of where I was, you know, keeping all of my, uh, you know, records for all the patients that I was rounding on so that I could remember them when I got home to start jotting them down. So you're right. You, you kind of do these things on the sly and it becomes a little bit of a double life. And at the same time, what's what, you know, in my medical career, I was experiencing some pretty wild stuff. You know, when you're a doctor, you see some pretty crazy things. You People get shot in, when in, in, they show up in the emergency rooms. You know, I delivered three babies when I was on my OBGYN rotation in medical school. You see things that most people don't see. You encounter things, do things that most people don't get to do. And that's a privilege. And those are excellent experiences. But you also see people at the absolute worst, you know, when they're about to die, when they're very sick, when they're at their most vulnerable. There's a lot of emotional ups and downs. And you have to be very steady during this time. And you have to have this very particular balance between being empathetic, but also at the same time dispassionate enough that you are not affected so much by someone's medical situation that you can't make the right decisions for them. And so I envisioned the doctor um, character in the novel as ta taking that sort of dispassionate aspect to an extreme, where all of a sudden he's became almost so jaded by medicine that nothing phases him, and he becomes this very cynical, emotionless character, which is why I decided to ironically call him Dr. Happy. Um, that has a, bit of a double meaning. One is because he's this really you know, emotionless person who never smiles, never laughs, never tells a joke in the, in, the, in the book, but also because he's now taken his medical career to the point where it almost seems to him like a service industry. He uh, takes jobs because they're just easy. There's a Hollywood party, and he gets paid to show up and dispense pharmaceutical-grade narcotics to people at the party and make sure that no one overdoses because it's just an easy way for him to get paid. And But he ends up getting this nickname, Dr. Happy, because he's providing joy to other people by getting them high on drugs, even though he is you know, completely emotionally, you know, absent uh, throughout the novel. Would, would you say he's as important as the bad guy lawyer character or that Dr. Happy is, is more resolutely secondary? I would say that they're really two sides of the coin. They're really an interesting dichotomy. The lawyer character, Guy McCann, it's, you know, he's a little bit more of, you know, he's a lawyer character. He's the fast talker. He is the guy who's a little bit more of a hothead. He's got a little bit of a game show host in him in terms of, and, and he very much is, you know, superficial things are important to him, how he looks, how he dresses, getting the girl. And he's the one who's obsessed with finding his ex-girlfriend. 
not just because she may have information that could save his life, but because he really also wants her back in his life. And so I really wanted to kind of set up the dichotomy there. I really struggled with the title early on. I didn't really, you know, part of me didn't want to subjugate Dr. Happy as a completely secondary character by making Guy McCann the title character. But early on, when I was going through ideas of titles, I was really struggling. And one day, one of my kids came over and asked what the book was about. And my wife, who had read an earlier draft already, said to him, well, it's about a lawyer who's a bad guy for, you know, who's a lawyer for bad guys. Bad guy lawyer. I'm like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's going to be, I couldn't come up with anything better than that. So I'm like, that's, that's where we're going to go with. And I love the title. Uh, I love the fact that when people see the title, they'll make jokes like, oh, this is the most, you know, redundant title I've ever heard. I was going to, yeah, you took it, you took it out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> but that's good. That's part of the fun of it. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like titles are important, you know, because you need to, you know, you need to give people a sense of what's going. I, I love a title that gives you a little bit of a hint of what you're going to be getting into. Uh, I think that it's a bit of, I, I hear lots of stories from fellow writers where they come up with these very clever titles for their thriller novels, only for the publishers to decide to change it right before publication to something very generic because it, you know, sounds like what a thriller novel should sound like, even though the title means absolutely nothing. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, you know, the publisher generally knows or should know what sells. So, um, yeah, it's a tough call. Like, you, I, there's the desire for that poetic title, but oftentimes the publishers want something more literal. But in your case, I think you, you've got it all. I think it, like you said, evokes what's in there, but it's also clever. And it was actually the reason I uh, raised my hand to co-host today. Uh, come to think of it, because Al sends us a list of who's coming around the corner, and the title popped out. I was like, ooh, that sounds like fun. So there you go. Great. Perfect. In addition, the redundant thing is it crossed my mind, too, but it's like, that's part of the humor insofar as it's like, well, he must be extra bad if he's a bad guy lawyer, because it's like, you know, if they're, the starting presumption is they're all bad. But on the other hand, uh, you know, if, if there's ever a spinoff for Dr. Happy, uh, a few minutes ago when you said back alley, lawyer, uh, back alley doctor, uh, that could be a title, too, so... Oh, absolutely. Dr. Happy was a lot of fun to write because as, again, as a physician, I got to write a character who got to do things and say things that I could never do in my professional life without getting sued or fired or arrested or. <laughs> right, right. And so that's very freeing when you get to do that. Take all the things that maybe sometimes in your worst moment you wish you could say and have them have that freedom. Well, now. In the book, you've got two sides of one coin, a doctor and a lawyer, and you're a doctor. So you have all the requisite expertise, as you just said, and all the experiences, but you're not a lawyer. So how was that in terms of balancing that scale? Like, what, what did you do on the lawyer side to get the authenticity that equals the doctor's side? Sure. Well, first of all, it started with, I had a really good idea of what the per, a guy's personality was like, what his motivations were. And so once I had that, I said, okay, I know what he wants to say or what he wants to do. I just have to give him a little bit of a vocabulary. And, and, and I also kind of reread through a lot of the medical scenes because there's a lot of scenes that take place in hospitals, emergency rooms in the novel. There's a scene where Dr. Happy has to perform bedside you know, surgery in a hotel room. And so I looked through and saw, okay, the level of detail I was giving just automatically from my medical background and said, okay, let me, you know, let me do my due diligence and do some research so I can apply some similar level of authenticity to when, 
guy really has to employ his craft. So I read a couple novels, or, or I'm sorry, I, I'm, I read a couple nonfiction books that were written, uh, either biographies or autobiographies of former mob lawyers, actually, including someone who was uh, uh, attorney for Santo Traficante, who was a very central mafia figure during the, you know, kind of golden era of, uh, of, of the mafia during the Godfather type of years um, before, the, before and during the Cuban Revolution. And so I learned a lot about how the types of cases that a mob, uh, that a lawyer who represents a mafia figure might take on, what types of, you know, interactions they would have with judges, what types of, you know, what the outcomes in some of those cases would be. And in some of these books, we would get a lot of descriptions about conversations that he would have with his employer. And that gave me some ideas in terms of the dynamic to a point. And then afterwards, I just, I mean, I do have lawyer friends. I would just ask them little tidbits here, there. And I wanted to employ a little bit, you know, just not a lot. I wanted to make it interesting, obviously, but a little kind of mundane things here and there, just again, to give you that everyday, day-to-day thing. Because I think that one of the fun things about writing about Dr. Happy was, is I could just pick little details that I recalled from my medical career to throw them in, like you said, to give that authenticity. But even if it's just a tiny thing, just about, you know, finding a white coat to put on when he goes into the hospital, um, just because he knows once he's wearing the white coat, no one's going to look at him twice. He can pretty much go wherever he wants in the hospital to do what he needs to do. When when when, when you're talking about the back alley doctor and stuff, uh, is it a pretty realistic character? Like, are there people really like that that you've come across or that you've kind of um, met? in your time in the uh, medical career you had? No. To be honest, I think this is really steeped in... I, I, I think this remains very much a trope in movies and novels. There are bad doctors. There are doctors who do bad things, who lose their licenses, who get sued, and, and, and are actually found criminally negligent for some of the things that they do. But I think that by and large, those doctors view themselves as good doctors. They, a lot of times, those doctors who are practicing irresponsible medicine probably don't even realize they're doing it. They probably think they're doing the right thing. They just aren't even you know, aware of how poorly they're providing care to their patients. Dr. Happy is someone who makes a very conscious decision to work you know, to be employed by doing things that he knows are illegal. And I think that, you know, in order for that to happen, someone has to, something really major has to, someone someone has to really majorly screw up uh, in, in order to find themselves. Because after going through college, medical school, and, and spending all the money, you know, and time to get to that point in life, to end up finding yourself delivering a craft where you're basically just a glorified drug dealer, is quite a quite a drop. I don't think that there's a lot of these guys really out there. Really, the way I look at it is, it's something that you see in movies and you see in TV shows and you see in books all the time. And I wanted to take that classic trope and kind of breathe a little bit of new life into it and use it in this you know uh, in this way to tell this to tell the to help tell the story. You know, talking about your experience in the medical profession and and having that. Um... Were, were you ever worried about uh, some of the real stuff that you went through and who you were 
kind of crossing into some of the fiction that you were writing? Well, there's definitely parts in the book that are taken from real life. I, but at the same time, you need to respect your patient's privacies. And, you you know, I, I would never write anything that would, you know, where a patient would read the book and realize that I was writing about them. I would, I would never, I would always change details um, to the point where, you know, anything that actually happens, you wouldn't be able to identify it uh, in the book itself. You just take certain situations, certain details, and you kind of tie things together in a way that helps drive the narrative or provide important details to the story. But I can tell you that there's um, one thing that I noticed after I read the book, after I finished the book and, and was going through the editing phases, is I realized that there's a lot of doctor characters in the book. Some are main characters and others just show up just for a chapter. And then I realized, I was really surprised that all of these doctor characters either engage in criminal behavior, are incompetent at their jobs, or just jerks, or, or some com combination thereof. There aren't any really good guy doctors in the book. And I really did not consciously set out to represent physicians in that way. In real life, all the doctors I trained with, that I worked with, that I know socially are wonderful, talented, law-abiding people. So there must have been something I was subconsciously working out of my own when I wrote the book. I don't know. But I wanted to go on record saying that uh, none of the physicians that I know personally are really represented in this book. All the doctors that I know are wonderful people, unlike the folks that show up in the novel. Well, and that's interesting. That's such an interesting area because uh... – no doubt they're wonderful people. I mean, they're ethical and upstanding and guided by uh, a moral conscience. But might you have been, and don't, don't let me put words in your mouth, were you, as you said, subconsciously expressing something perhaps as to the temperament of doctors or certain doctors? Yeah, I think that everyone is aware of a phenomenon that's going on right now in the United States of doctor burnout. Physicians leaving medicine because they're feeling burned out. There's a lot of frustration that occurs in medicine. And I think one of the things that isn't talked about very much is people get into medicine to take care of patients, to perform surgery, to prescribe the right medications, to come up with the right diagnosis. They don't go into medicine to fill out paperwork and call social workers and, you know, all of the other and deal with insurance companies, all this other stuff that actually becomes, over the years, has become an increasingly uh, larger proportion of what doctors spend their time doing. And they're not really getting paid for that extra stuff. They're still just getting paid for the care they deliver to patients. And if you are doing that for your career for long enough, you're going to get frustrated. And that frustration needs to, you, know, you have to find some way to vent that frustration in a healthy way. And so I think, you know, maybe... That, that probably did help me out in terms of turning to the dark side a little bit in terms of, of painting medicine in a sometimes not so bright light. Right. I mean, because um, I'm trying to, I, I want to come up with the right way to say this without it crossing a line. Because, of course, I mean, needless to say, what doctors do with their lives is the utmost in virtuous and compassionate. And uh, my perception is in alignment with what you said about how, by and large, I mean, these are wonderful people. Uh, but there can be the perception among some doctors, not all, but it happens here and there that there might be an attitude. So the, what, what you're saying, what you're attributing perhaps to burnout. 
So uh, maybe that uh, was the source of drama for you to enhance that. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, to a degree. I think there's other elements too. I think we're all we've we've all come across doctors who maybe were seemed a little cocky, a little bit you know overly dispassionate, uh, a little bit dismissive. Most people probably have had lots of. I would say more and more every day. I think you're going to come up with, with people who feel like they haven't really had the best experiences with their doctor. And I think that has a lot to do with just the inefficiencies and imperfections of, of, you know, American modern medicine. At the same time, when you're in medical school, when you're in residency, it's very stressful. You're working very long hours and you're doing, you know, and you're seeing some really scary stuff sometimes and in, in dealing with traumatic situations. And sometimes the only way you can really cope with that is to develop a little bit of a gallows humor. And with behind closed doors, there'll be a lot of, you know, things that you wouldn't necessarily want patients or other people to hear just in terms of the humor that you're using as a sort of, you know, coping mechanism. And so there's a, a little bit of a vocabulary that occurs uh, behind closed doors that I think, you know, you also, you know, I also maybe tapped into a little bit just in terms of the way that Dr. Happy is sometimes, and other doctors in the book are a bit dismissive of uh, of the patients or other, or their colleagues. Got now, um, I'm curious to hear your insights, because all that is so fascinating, as to the moral pathway of a lawyer, because it, it starts from a different matrix of motives, perhaps, um, certainly not, you know, like you said, doctors by and large, start off wanting to care for patients and prescribe medicine? Like, what what was your archetype as to the lawyer starting off, and what sort of moral waters did you find yourself going into there? Oh, absolutely. Guy McCann, the, you know, the bad guy lawyer, he wants to make money, and he wants to be famous and, you know, have the stature of a top lawyer and have the cachet that comes with that. That's what he wants. And that's what he's always wanted. He started off very naive. I, you know, I tap, tap into his backstory a little bit. There's a, three chapters that provide a little bit of a flashback. to, So you can see a little bit evolution of Guy McCann from someone who's really just kind of coming out of law, law school when he's still very naive. He knows that he wants to be successful. He's very um, puts a, a high premium on you know, uh, making money on being seen in the right place, wearing the right clothes, uh, dating a very good looking woman. And for him, getting the right clients is the way to do that. And what ends up happening is, is the right client ends up being a mafia figure who ironically becomes his worst nightmare. He initially starts getting all the things that he wants, money, you know, uh, you know, stature, you know, the girl. But once he realizes that he's made a bit of a deal with the devil and things go south, he finds that now all of a sudden he has to give up everything he ever wanted because when the novel starts out, he's actually no longer in the nice area of Los Angeles where he was practicing. Now he's in Las Vegas, basically giving, you know, backroom legal advice to low level crooks just to, you know, more or less, you know, quote unquote, pay the bills. You know, he's already, he's experienced this fall from grace. And that's how the novel starts out. And he's trying to not even dig himself back up. That's not even, I don't think that's even an option for him anymore. His motivations now are just to stay alive. It, it seems like um, the vibe I'm getting, 
amid all the depth of what you're saying, uh, maybe it's because of the juxtaposition between the doctor and the lawyer. It seems like there's a lot of humor in the novel. Is that, am I, is that, maybe it's coming from the title too. Because in, in addition to the crime and thriller elements, which are strong, there seems to be a, a sardonic thing going on. Oh, without question. I think there's, I hope that, I think it's a funny novel. I hope other people find it funny, but it's a very dark and it's a dark humor that's interspersed between a bit of violence and some uncomfortable situations. But Don McCann, he's a lawyer and he's a fast talker and he's got a wit and he's got and the whole kind of what I would say about Guy at the beginning of the novel is he's, he's lost everything except his mouth. You know, his ability to talk himself out of trouble is really the only thing that he has going for him. And he teams that up with Dr. Happy, who has this medical acumen that allows him to play a little bit of a Sherlock Holmes type of character where he can help Guy, you know, fill in the gaps between his legal knowledge and uh, to, to figure out what they need to figure out to find Blair and um, take care of themselves. But it's interesting, too, because these are two people who are used to being the smartest guy in the room. And when I say they're teaming up, I mean, they're butting heads as much as they're teaming up. This is a reluctant part. These two people are together simply because they see each other as the only way for them to keep the mob off their back and stay alive. And so you've got two people who are used to being the smartest people in the room, and now they're arguing over who's the smartest person in the room whenever they're together. And so that provides a lot of the humor, too, trying to see, you know, it's almost like the beginning of a joke, right? A doctor and a lawyer walk into a bar. So I, I certainly try to make use of that as much yeah. as possible in the novel. How is it that the underworld people, the uh, mob bosses, are proven to be more intelligent in certain ways than your main characters? Well, I think both of them, the guy in particular has a fatal flaw, and that's his ego. And so he, the fact that he thinks he's, perhaps thinks he's more clever than he really is, that gets exploited. And I think the other thing is, is that the mafia figures, they've been around the block in a way that Guy has not. They've gotten their hands dirty before in ways that Guy has not, and, and in ways that Guy probably is not capable of doing. They are willing to enable, and they've shown, you know, the precedent of singing to a level that perhaps Guy is not comfortable with. Because at the end of the day, Guy and, and Dr. Happy, these are white-collar guys, right? Now, they've sunk to a level where now they're associating with these criminals, but they are not themselves murderers. They are not themselves, you know, you know, have not themselves, you know, given to the depths that these guys, you know, were born into. I, I'd imagine that you have some sort of a, a subtext underneath the, the the story the entertainment value of the book so there there you know something that you want a reader to take away or think about um besides the uh the action so to speak well there's a couple things one thing that we haven't talked about is that the book takes place in 1987 and that was a conscious decision for a lot of reasons one being that at the time I was reading a lot of Elmore Leonard and Donald Westlake, and I kind of felt that this, given the subject matter, you know, this is a dark book. I felt that it really, I wanted it to read like the type of 
paperback novel that you might find in your dad's attic. You know, I wanted to really have that dime store paperback, you know, that, that pulp novel kind of feel. But in setting it in the 1987, I also had to be a little bit um, cognizant of, you know, gender roles at the time, class roles at the time, and, you know, remind myself, okay, I have to make sure that I'm not being too modern with some of the situations, some of the dialogue. And so, but at the same time, you know, doctors and lawyers, you know, we tend to elevate them, you know, to a higher class. But in this book, really, at the end of the day, everyone's on equal footing because everyone is trying to stay alive and everyone is really being forced to do things that you wouldn't normally see them do under day-to-day circumstances because of that. How do you find that um, people react in real life when you're a doctor as compared to what's written in books generally? So you mean at, in, in my career or just in, in like day-to-day Find out I'm a doctor. Yeah, in your career or even day to day as a doctor, um, how real life is it um, compared to what we see on in other books or TV? Yeah, well, I think I alluded to this before. If you were to take an entire week of me working in the hospital and you wanted to put that into a, a, a movie or TV show or write about it in a novel that a part that would be entertaining that people would want to consume, you would probably cut an entire week down to maybe two or three minutes, right? Most of what I do is not very interesting. And to be honest, when you are a doctor, you, if you really don't want things to get, you don't want things to get too exciting. If things get too exciting, it usually means that someone's life is in jeopardy and that's a bad thing. And so I used to say that a boring day at work was a good day at work. Well, how much of yourself has gone into your characters? Well, a bit. I think that what I tried to do is I really needed Guy and Dr. Happy to be distinct on the page. I needed them to really have distinct voices, personalities, and motivations. So to help, you know, particularly in writing the dialogue, I felt like I had to tap into slightly different parts of myself and, and be cognizant of exactly who of myself I was tapping into when I to assist, you know, particularly with the dialogue writing, particularly when they're talking to each other. And I think that everyone has, you know, the side of them that's maybe a little bit more vain and self-centered than they wish it was. And that's, that's guy. And some, sometimes you kind of feel like, you know, really right now, all I want to do is be left alone. You know, I wish that, you know, I'm walking by this guy, um, you know, on the, you know, on the corner who, who's asking for change. And today I'm going to, I feel bad for him. So today I'm going to give him some change. But, you know, part of me wishes that I could just walk past him without feeling bad at all. You know, and so that part of you that, you know, like that's not a good part of you, but, you know, it's, it's there. You know, it, it, none of us is perfect. And so, you know, you kind of tap into these different parts, you know, and, and then blow that up to, you know, imagine that none of the other parts of you exist and, and that was allowed to, you know, walk around and live unchecked. And that sort of starts to approximate, you know, the characters, at, at least enough that you can, you can write them. Uh, obviously, they're a little bit more layered than that. You know, they're not, you know, they're, they're, both of them have good qualities too. And at the end of the day, they do come to really respect each other and they really do come to form a partnership and they really do show uh, a type of loyalty to each other that, you know, they, uh, they, they did not at the beginning of the novel, but 
I think that you have to be willing to, at least my, me, myself, I had to be willing to admit that there are some imperfect parts of me, you know, in order to really tap into that and write these characters realistically. What's your process like when you're writing this? Uh, in the sense of, are, are you experiencing your characters? Do you feel them, see them like a movie or, or, or how do you, um, sit down and, and go through these scenarios? So the first thing is I really needed to get the feel for what the book was going to be. And so I almost created in my mind a trailer. Like imagine the book was a movie. What would the trailer look like? You know, what would the music be? What would the, you know, mood and setting be? And then once I kind of got a sense of that, I said, okay, that mood. That feeling, that's got to be imbued in every page. So that's got to, I got to hold on to that during this entire writing process. I already knew who the core characters were going to be. I was able to kind of come up with some really cool anecdotes from my medical career or things that I read about in some of the research that I, I was doing. So I would just jot those down and then kind of create a skeletal plot that really just kind of connected all these elements together. And as I would, and then I would just lay, you know, the meat and the fat on top of those bones. And as in doing so, I, new character, I would have to come up with new characters. I would have to come up with new scenes I hadn't, you know, considered before in order to connect different events. And once I kind of, and, and that just, I just kept layering layers and layers and layers until I really had a very long outline that really spelled everything out. And then it was just really that, that document ended up turning into the first draft. So I went from literally, the same Word document that was just one page of this little outline, that same document later became, you know, the first draft of the manuscript. So um, let's talk about um, people finding you. Um, did you run a website? Do you do any social media? How, how do you like to connect with readers? So I like to connect through my website, chuckmartin.com. That's M-A-R-T-E-N. I have all announcements in terms of uh, both this book plus my new novel that will be coming out in May. That's called uh, The Green Stick Fracture. That, um, both, uh, that book and Bad Guy Lawyer published by Down and Out Books, so providing updates uh, on that. Also try to give a little bit of news in terms of if I'm going to be on a podcast or at a writing conference, and also a little bit of, you know, when I get around to it, uh, a little bit of original writing, short stories, or other little anecdotes that I'd like to add on. So chuckmartin.com is the best way to, to get all that content. Now, now that you've uh, gone into it, you have the first novel, do you have the bug now? Is the, uh, are you, do you just want to keep going and uh, one after the other, or will it be more once in a while? What are you saying? Uh, I would love to put out a book a year. We'll see if I have, uh, you know, the, the, the stamina for that. But the second book just kind of came out really out of nowhere. I literally, and this is going to seem so cliche, but I literally had a dream that about, you know, where I was woken up by my son who was still, you know, not sleeping through the night yet. So I wake up in the early morning and I still had the dream fresh in my mind the way that you do when you get unnaturally woken up from sleep. And I was like, God, that was such a crazy dream. And so I was like, the whole next day, all I could think about is what would put someone in that situation that happened. And what happened in the dream was someone walked into a bar and ran into someone who was in the bar, couldn't see that person's face, and that person attacked them for no reason. And so I took that event and I wrote, I just came up with how, do, how would that person get from point A to there? And then what would happen next? And 
you know, I was able to sit down and, and, and write that. And this book is about a medical student. It's a little bit more of a medical thriller than Bad Guy Lawyer is, but it's much more light. Uh, it's fast paced. It's a much more of a comedic novel because it's a, it's a medical mystery in a sense, but the central protagonist is a medical student. He's not yet a doctor. So he doesn't know everything about medicine far from it. And so his, Lack of mastery of medicine leads him to being, uh, you know, it is a, equivocates to his lack of mystery of being able to solve crimes. And so he's a little bit of a imperfect detective as he tries to um, solve the mystery of how he broke his hands. He got, gets dumped by his girlfriend, uncharacteristically has one drink too many as he's trying to mend his broken heart, wakes up the next day and his right hand is wrapped in a cast. He has uh, a huge sum of money missing from his bank account, and he has no recollection of the events of the night before. And so he takes upon himself to try to piece this together, and he ends up just stumbling into one problem after another to the point where you wonder maybe he should have just stayed in bed. Uh, do these stories take place in one universe? Is it the same fictional world, or is the main connective tissue the uh, medical component? So that's the medical component is really the only connector. Uh, the green stick fracture takes place um, in the 1990s in, in Manhattan, whereas bad guy lawyer takes place in 1980s Los Angeles. And again, it's tonally, it's a very different book too. This is, this is a very funny book. First and foremost, it's um, like I said, it, it has a medical thriller, medical mystery aspects of it has definitely crime elements in it. There is a, a mafia aspect of it too. There's a, you know, it, it's also about a guy with a broken heart who is trying to get over his girlfriend. I liken it to a little bit of a cross between the flight attendant meets uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Are you going to keep drawing from your medical expertise? Is that, does that seem like the outlook at the moment? It does. It seems like the easiest way to stay genuine in my writing, to be perfectly honest. It, it, but I think that, there are still many, many more interesting medical experiences that I can draw from. And I think that it is definitely something that I can help inform my writing and guide my writing and in ways of, you know, coming up with fresh plots and, you know, offering the readers a level of authenticity. I think the last thing I would want to do is, you know, write a novel about, you know, you know, uh, you know, your, your, your typical spy thriller, espionage thriller without knowing anything, you know, about the world of, 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 of espionage. That's not, you know, even if I came up with the, the greatest plot in the world, you know, you have to know what you're writing about. And so certainly, you know, writing, a, you know, having that medical thriller aspect of it in the writing, that, that certainly is, is easy because of my background. But uh, if I ever run out of ideas, then I'm going to start you know, hit the library, hit the internet, and, and start doing some research so I can provide that level of authenticity to. What? Why do you think this is my last question? Why do you think the medical uh, profession gels so naturally with the thriller genre? Well, there's always a mystery in medicine. There's always, you know, I, you know, I think there's a reason why. You know, you think about the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes was a physician. And now you have House MD, you know, going first full circle where you have the Sherlock Holmes character who actually is a physician whose gift is trying to make diagnoses in patients where no one else knows what's going on. And there's and that's what medicine is when you have a patient who has these symptoms that you don't know what's wrong with them. 
you look for signs and symptoms and you put them together. You're, you're looking for clues in their body and through tests in order to figure out what's going on. So every time I meet a new patient, you know, I approach it like I'm trying to solve a little bit of a mystery. And I think that to lay people, so much medi- of medicine is a black box. There, there's a magical act like, okay, I had this symptom. You know, I went to the doctor and they told me this, they gave me this treatment and now I'm better. And it, sometimes it kind of seems like a little bit of a, of a magic act, even though you can go online and type in your symptoms and, and get answers. So many times that's not actually what's going on. So many times the doctors are going to go through a completely different algorithm uh, to figure out what's going on and, and to treat you. So I think those aspects of it, you know, very easily lend itself to the thriller genre. Wow. Um, now, so this book came out in uh, March, March of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you must have been writing a lot of this over the pandemic thing. And, and how was that for you? So it's interesting. I actually wrote this, the first draft of it, pre-pandemic. In fact, quite a few years before the pandemic started. But I was still working as a doctor. and I really didn't have the courage or the knowledge of what to do with this early manuscript, you know, where to take it, what to do with it. Finally, when the pandemic came, I had all this time because I wasn't, you know, seeing patients in the hospital for several months. I was seeing them remotely on the computer. I had a lot more free time. And so I was able to, you know, find an editor, you know, um, and, you know, find a publisher and go through all these steps, you know, go through, you know, subsequent drafts, get it polished, get it ready for publication, you know, help with the stages of pre-publication. And so that was wonderful. And then as the pandemic wore on, you know, much longer, you know, obviously than any of us initially thought, I was able to take that time and, and write the second novel, The Green Stick Fracture. So The Green Stick Fracture was, was born out of that time, too. Wow. Uh, were you sort of surprised in the way that the um, uh, a lot of people in the public um, handle or didn't handle the pandemic? Not surprised in the sense that early on I had a feeling that there was going to be a proportion of the population who is very distrustful about medical recommendations. And I, I, I think what surprised me was to what degree. And uh, to, the other thing that surprised me was that I needed to be reminded that there's a big difference between medicine and, and policy. So there's what the doctors think should be done, and then there's what government figures think should be done. And one does not directly translate to the other. And we have to, you know, and so I was reminded in this process that, you know, you can be the best doctor in the world and you can have the best doctors giving you the best advice in the world. But translating what I would tell an individual patient sitting across the desk from me, what is best for that individual person is very different than what is best, you know, than what you tell an entire country, you know, is best for, you know, them or for the country. Right, right. So, so we should be drinking bleach. (laughs) (laughs) We should be, I think that we should be critical um, of the information that we're getting, including, you know, and there's nothing wrong with being critical of what your doctor tells you, you know, you should ask your doctor questions, um, you know, and, you know, if you're not sure why he is making a diagnosis, why he's prescribing medication, ordering a test, you know, there's nothing wrong with asking your doctor questions about, you know, why he's re- making or she is making the recommendations that they are. But 
so I think that we need to, you know, apply some level of, of critical thinking, you know, across the board, including, you know, what's, you know, especially, you know, what we're, you know, if you're getting, and to be perfectly honest, anyone who's taking medical advice unfiltered from the internet, from social media, you really have to wonder if that's the wisest decision. Why don't you double check that with someone on an individual basis? I read this online. Is this best for me? Yeah. The star magazine told me. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. anyway. Al is a uh, fervent pro-vaxxer. He was telling me before the show, he's all, he's all, he's got the flu. He's got monkeypox and COVID vaccines, not the diseases. So we're yeah. all, we're ready to go. Yeah. You have to be ready. Yeah. yeah. Nothing wrong with it. Well, it's certainly an interesting um, conversation, and uh, it sounds like a great book. Now, um, the book we've been talking about is Bad Guy Lawyer, and the author has been our guest, Mr. Chuck Martin, so thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me on. This has been great. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, all shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.